Welcome to this special episode of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. It was a real honour to be invited to Conservative Home's half-day conference on the future of jobs. Conservative Home is a great example of political entrepreneurship set up by Tim Montgomery in 2005. 17 years on, it now employs eight people and has become a very important part of the political media landscape in the UK. In the late noughties, when I was at university, it was critical daily reading for me to keep me up to date with the workings going on in my dissertation and my studies. I believe it is a great example of something that I talk to the team at Jimmy's Jobs all the time about. Make sure you know the information flows that you are putting yourself in and think about what you are consuming, whether it be on social media or media more generally, almost like a diet. Think about what you are consuming the whole time. Without further ado, we'll get on to today's show. But if you wanted me to come in and speak to your organisation or host a live recording of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, then do drop the team a line at hello at jobsofthefuture.co and we'd be happy to brainstorm ideas with you. Thank you very much, Mark, for that warm introduction. It gives me a great pleasure to introduce the guest today, which is Justine Greening, who many of you will know was the Member of Parliament for Putney between 2005 and 2019 and served in the Cabinet in some of the big spending departments such as transport, international development, as well as education. She left Parliament in 2019 to perhaps spend more time on policy and more time (laughs) levelling up. Justine, you founded the Purpose Coalition. Can you tell us about what that involves? Sure. It's it's bringing together lots of different business leaders, university leaders, public sector leaders to work collectively on driving levelling up. And it came out of a campaign that I launched as I left Cabinet called the Social Mobility Pledge, which was really saying to businesses in particular, look, even if we close all the gaps in the education system, if you're not open to that wider talent pool that Britain has, then we're not going to drive equality of opportunity. And so for us at the DfE, you know, we'd been talking about levelling up and it was very much an articulation of how you would achieve equality of opportunity. In other words, you don't achieve it by taking opportunities away from people who've already got it. It's really a question of how do you extend it to people who don't and how do you put them in a position to be able to get those opportunities and take them. So the Purpose Coalition was really this group of leaders who got on board with the Social Mobility Pledge and then were were saying, right, what's next? And so there was a huge amount of appetite, I think, to do more and to campaign and to have more impact on the ground. And and that's what we've been doing ever since. And what do you think, what what have you learned from the experience of putting more of these groups together? Because it was one of the things I realised in working in government and also having spent a bit of time studying at Stanford University in the States, is that there is a much bigger revolving door in the States between government, academia and and business. And there are plenty of criticisms around that at various points. Um, But it's not something we have here. It tends to be much more kind of siloed. And on your podcast, Fit for Purpose, you've had many kind of university vice chancellors come on the show and, and talk about what they're trying to do around enterprise. So what have you learned about bringing those groups together? So I guess, first of all, in terms of that relationship between politics and business in particular, so 
the challenge for business is it is becoming more like politics because actually businesses can't just say they're not part of a wider world and they need to understand what that wider world's priorities are and then be really clear about what they're doing to be part of the solution. We really saw that during COVID. You've seen companies now, as a matter of course, be clear about what their sustainability strategies is. My point to them and the case I'm making is that actually it's not just planet, it's also people. And that this country, as others, actually faces two big challenges. One is net zero, but the other is levelling up and persistent inequality of opportunity. And we need to tackle that. But fundamentally, and I spent 15 years in business and industry before I was an MP, opportunities really are about the private sector and business above all. So if you want to deliver a Leveled Up Britain, you've got to engage businesses. And actually, the really good news is there's a huge amount of innovation out there on the ground on levelling up, whether it's talent pipelines, whether it's um, a co-op working with a supply chain, whether it's, you know, even the BBC stepping up to the plate and saying, right, we are going to set ourselves some targets on people from lower socioeconomic diversity backgrounds, not just getting in, but getting on. All these different organisations saying, what does it mean to me? And in terms of our contribution to levelling up, what does that look like? And then the challenge, of course, for government is almost government's becoming more like business because government is about delivery. And so you can kind of see the two coming together. But I think really, if, if you look at this, you know, ESG agenda that business has got, and then the levelling up and net zero agenda that government's got, they are sort of the same thing, which is good, because it means we're all on the same page. And how can a business be more socially mobile with what it's trying to do? Because like you say, it's, it's one of the great things, getting a job allows people to kind of get on in life. And mm-hmm. business leaders may think, well, you know, I've created sort of, you know, however many X thousand jobs, surely that's, that's enough. Um, But what more can they do to really sort of ram home the social mobility aspect? There's tons. And you've got to bear in mind that the current cost of living crisis we are facing is actually a social mobility crisis. Because it is all the same families who are on the front line and really struggling, who are, because of where they start, trapped in those circumstances... You know, there is basically no such thing as a, as a lower paid job. There's actually just an employer who hasn't worked out how that lower paid job goes on to the next rung up the ladder and becomes a career. And so a lot of this is about employers choosing to behave differently. And I think what I've loved about doing all the work through the Social Mobility Pledge and the Purpose Coalition is businesses and employers don't really need a law change. This is about how businesses understand that being open to that wider talent pool is good business for them and actually is part of almost what's expected in modern Britain. So what you're seeing are companies really thinking about how they can work upstream, engaging with the education sector, a lot more work co-creating education, particularly with universities, particularly in places, parts of the country maybe where there's more of a levelling up challenge. You're seeing companies start to look at how they, as I said, can influence their supply chain, but there's just, they can do measurement that alone is an important thing for, for businesses to do, to see whether their opportunities are actually tending or not to go to people who are from those backgrounds where we know above all now it's vital that we break that cycle. Are those people actually then able to progress or are there parts of the organisation and levels where they don't seem to get beyond? There's some kind of barrier, whatever that is. And we're seeing really clearly now, I think, how you help people do those key transitions mm. in terms of what they need 
at the individual level to be able to progress on their path and achieve their potential. So if you think about Michael Gove's levelling up white paper, which I thought was a, a real step forward, that set out almost a macro picture for what we need to do collectively across Britain. But underneath that is almost a micro levelling up strategy that needs to be in place. And a lot of the, the organisations who actually deliver that for people are going to be employers, not just in the private sector, but also in the public sector. So there's this huge opportunity. So you can see someone like Direct Line doing hybrid and virtual job recruitment, specifically in a social mobility cold spot, say like Carlisle. They need a lot of people. They're likely to work from home. You might as well have them in the same place, though, because A, they can meet one another. B, it's easier to do training. That's a simple but actually really powerful idea that can make a difference. Um, you've got UK Power Networks looking at how they tilt their apprenticeship programme to do more pro-social mobility recruitment. A lot of them are thinking, well, actually, what do we need to do before that to create a pipeline that's broad? And so some of them are looking at place-based approaches. Others are looking at people-based, like how do we bring on more neurodiverse people? What are we doing around carers? As I said, what are we doing around, you know, lone parents? And so they're all just biting off different chunks of the, um, of the jigsaw puzzle and levelling up and succeeding. I think the, the phrase you use there, cost of living crisis is also a social mobility problem, is incredibly important and, and succinct for why the cost of living crisis is not just a short-term problem, but could be something that has long-term uh, scarring effects on, on the economy and on the country more broadly. But language like social mobility, I think, sometimes doesn't necessarily cut through to, to people. It's, it's a bit of a, of a kind of nebulous saying and, and so on. So what more can government do? It's a bit like the language around skills and, and skill sets. People often don't think of themselves as a kind of skill set. So how can the government kind of communicate? Because we all need to do lifelong learning. Nadim Zawahi is speaking later this morning, but is saying that if you've got people that you're trying to educate now that are still going to be working in 2060, 2070, we cannot possibly know the skills that are going to be used by them. Yeah, so you can't really do this kind of Soviet-style more tractors, please, because actually you don't know what the tractor is that you're going to need. So it is a challenge for the education system. Going back to that micro piece of, you know, so what do people need to, you know, what are the jigsaw pieces they need to be able to move? One is around having the right attitude and understanding of opportunity. If you don't even know about an opportunity, it is impossible to go for it. It is having the right knowledge and skills, and that is where the DfE comes in. But I think it's part of it. And I think that skill set that people need isn't just core knowledge and skills. It's around a curiosity for taking risks, understanding how to learn about taking risks. It is about, as we all know, working in teams. And, and I remember a, a few years ago when we started the Social Mobility Pledge talking to the managing director of one of our major accounting firms, I'm not going to say which, but they had done a piece of work and they wanted to know what do our most successful performers have? Because if we can find out that then we should just recruit those sorts of people with it, whatever it is. And actually, they could do that because, as I know, I trained at PwC. After every client job, you, you have an appraisal. So actually, right the way through the organisation, they've actually got quite a lot of good data about performance. So they, they go right the way through and they, they talk to all of the top performers and they have three things in common. <laughs> There's no correlation on academics. That's the first thing to say. 
the, the things they had in common were they had all had adversity, actually, earlier on in their lives and, and had to somehow get over that. They had all had a Saturday job, paper round, something like that. They had all been part of a team that had achieved things. In other words, perhaps unsurprisingly, what they'd found was that successful people are able to get over problems. And actually, the kinds of people who do that might be ones who've generally had to deal with more in their lives. They were people who showed a keen sense of effort and reward being linked. And they were people who could work in a team. The question I think back for education then is, if that's actually what successful people need, how can we make sure our education system is actually helping people develop those mindsets, those skills, alongside that core knowledge and skills that they'll need? So you're almost saying we don't know exactly what those roles will be of the future, but we do know that in a 21st century where it's all about knowledge and talent that those early years in education and those attitudes that we're putting in into our young people are going to be crucial for them being able to surf and create that world and create the jobs. What, so what's your advice to somebody that's kind of under 25, perhaps, and is trying to find their way in their career? Because I do think that young adulthood, particularly, is more confusing than sometimes we sort of give credit for, and we kind of think people should have all the answers at 18 or post-university, and, and actually it's, it's nowhere near that. What, what's your advice to those that are under kind of 25 that are beginning to make the steps in their career in terms of building some of those resilient skills that you mentioned? Well, I think, first of all, you know, it is a very unique environment. People are looking at jobs in. I mean, certainly in the past, it's been... So the good news is in the past, it was a buyer's market. And so employers would have a whole range of people apply for them. And then they'd be like, who do I think is best? That is all changed. Yeah. It is now a seller's market, and it probably will be for a while. And so that means, and and what we're working with employers on doing is, so employers really need to be able to say to a whole new generation of people entering the workplace, why would you come to us? And that means having some sense of purpose in your job, in a, a business that's also got a sense of purpose about why what any of it does matters. It is about having a flexibility around the fact that people do want to balance. It's not just more hours for the sake of it now. People want to work smartly. They also want to see, where's my career going? That's quite a broad ask. But in a, in a, in a way, it's also shifting away from, I'll just go to the highest bidder. Yeah. So it's just a very different, perhaps more values-driven group of people entering the workforce. And my advice to them would be, Don't worry if you don't know really what you want to do. Try different things. Most people don't actually have that preordained career or really have a clear sense. I I certainly didn't, but that's okay. And so it's almost this sense of be curious, get those very different experiences. Realize that often some of the toughest times in your life are going to be the times when you learn the most. And so if you can learn to take that rough with the smooth, actually those are the times that you... You can really build. And so not to be too bothered about things when they go wrong, to kind of see them in the round as some moments when actually possibly that's the beginning of you becoming a lot better than you were yeah. before. Even though it doesn't feel like it at the time. Even though it doesn't necessarily feel like it. And in your career, you were kind of in, in PwC, uh, which has a kind of one of the challenges that I think 
for employers at the moment trying to hire young people is it has been that one of the big things is we'll map out a career plan for you and, <laughs> and so on. And actually young people don't particularly want that. They want lots of different experiences and will only perhaps go and work in a place for two or three years perhaps. Um, you went and did an executive MBA at mm. London Business School. What was your kind of thought process behind doing that? Um, and what did you learn from that? So it's a good example of where I was at a really good employer. So the kind of backstory to that was I'd said after I finished at PwC and I'd gone into industry and I'd passed my exams and I literally said to you know my mum if I ever say I want to do any more exams just shoot me um, <laughs> because because this has been hard but anyway sure enough you know a few years down the line I'm like oh I feel like I need to learn <laughs> more things I've got some experience I now want to learn and and sort of broaden out almost from being as it were, a finance person. And so I started shooting off all sorts of emails in the company that I worked for, which was then SmithKline Beecham, later to become GSK. And I actually got into a bit of trouble because I was emailing these senior vice presidents of, of various areas that I thought would be quite interesting to find out about in a slightly uncontrolled way. But actually, um, after my boss, who was really nice, but a bit perturbed to find out that I'd been emailing lots of people, um, after he got over being a little annoyed with me, he came back to me and said, look, Justine, let's work out what's, what's next. Like, have you ever thought about doing an MBA? And I, I had, but I hadn't really come back to that thought. So, so they ended up sponsoring me to do an MBA at the London Business School. It was just such a good example of how actually you took a moment where maybe I hadn't been at my best because I'd never had a mentor and didn't really know how to go. I was trying to work out for me as someone who was, as it were, from Rotherham and didn't really have that social circle. I was trying to create these contacts to find out what to do. Yeah. Whereas maybe for other people from other backgrounds, they'd have been able to have those conversations with their parents' friends. And that just wasn't the case for me. Um, but we managed to turn it into a really, a really great moment where I ended up doing an MBA, which also nearly killed me. Um, <laughs> so I was like back there again <laughs> I do think there's something interesting about emailing lots of people at the moment I think one of the challenges of working from home is it does mean that the, there used to be it used to be quite hard to apply for a job when you were in a job because you know, you'd be at a computer all day <laughs> whereas now you can sit at home and your boss isn't quite looking over your shoulder seeing you on the various job pages and, and so forth and so you know, impressive kind of city career executive MBA uh, from London Business School and then you decide well I'm going to do politics how did that happen where did it all go wrong <laughs> um, <laughs> I, well I mean I didn't really plan to do politics at all I so I, I, I thought I'd do a bit of leafleting yeah. with the Conservative Party um, because it was quite a tough time and I thought look I know what my politics are and I think it's quite important for people to still have a sense that there are choices even if it's not a choice they want eventually they'll want something different at the same time as a favor <laughs> to be honest I ended up running for council in Epping and and I got elected <laughs> so oh god I'm really busy at work um career's going pretty good I was doing the MBA <laughs> as well so all of a sudden so were I, you a paper candidate then sort of yeah, yeah. And, and and to be to be fair I wanted to show that there were younger conservatives um, and there were people who were, you know, under 70 in the mix. Yeah. But anyway, I loved it. And so I, I kind of just really enjoyed getting stuff done, you know, back in, back in Epping and yeah. 
I just really enjoyed it. And I'd never thought seriously about going into politics or standing for, for Parliament. And so my first decision was just, I will stand for Parliament. It will be a really good thing to do for to be part of a democracy, because I think that's good. And I'd always watched people on the stage on general election night thinking, what's that like? Yeah. You know, when you have your name read out and everything. Mine's really short because I, I don't have a middle name, so I'm just Justine Greening. So I have none of those embarrassing name problems to get over <laughs> that some people do. So the initial decision for me, Jimmy, was just, I am going to try and be a positive, good part of our democracy. I want to be, want to be a candidate where they're like, oh, she was good. I don't really like the Conservatives, but I quite liked her. What shall I do? And for me, I thought, that's choice. So I did that. I really enjoyed doing that. And, and in the end, yeah, I'd moved to Putney and I was the Putney candidate and got elected. And you went on to kind of serve in, in Cabinet and do some of the really big jobs there as well. Which job did you most enjoy out of transport, education and mm. international development? Oh, I mean, I loved education, obviously. Yeah. It was, you know, I went through the state system, went to my local comprehensive. I mean, it completely transformed my prospects. And the chance to be able to be in a role where I could make the system better for a new generation of people... And I'd go to these primary schools and they'd be a lot like mine in Herringthorpe, infant and junior school and, and, you know, secondary schools that were like Oakwood. And, you know, the thing is you walk into those classrooms and you don't know who those people are going to become. You know, they're little people, they're teeny tiny, they're in sandpits, they're doing silly things. But they could end up being the most amazing tech entrepreneur that creates thousands of jobs that does the next iPhone. And the thing about human capital is it's unlike any other resource in our planet. Every other resource, the more you use it, the more it gets depleted. But with people, it's the opposite. The more you use them, the more you give them experiences, the more it builds them up. And the, the stronger and better they become, actually. And so for me, education was really by far my, my favourite job. I think the role that transformed me on a personal level the most was doing development, mm. where I got to see some very different lives, some very different countries. Yet you could also see some parallels with our own challenges and, and this thread almost that connected up us. And you could see, if you're me, that's when I first started talking about something like levelling up and social mobility, was in DFID. You could see this thing coming down the track for Britain where people will do anything for opportunity. It's the most precious commodity in the world. And that holds true wherever they are in the world. So you see people literally putting their lives on the line to try to get to somewhere where they can have some opportunity because we all want to have lives where we feel we've got a chance of making something of ourselves. And that's as true for, you know, kids growing up in you know the shacks in Nairobi as it is for me growing up in Rotherham and so you could see that commonality but you could also see how for me leveling up is then an international agenda as well as a domestic one but hey let's start with Britain first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the decision to kind of leave cabinet and you know we talk about jobs and the, and the different jobs mm -hmm. that you've you've done in cabinet the sort of the backstory to this is that the the prime minister wanted to move you at the, at the time uh, to work in pensions and, and actually you said 
I don't want to do that. And unlike a lot of politicians, <laughs> and unlike a lot of politicians, <laughs> mm -hmm. you you really meant it, and you stuck by your guns, mm. and you and you left it, you left cabinet kind of completely. And that must. What was the feeling after that? So I guess one of the lessons is always have a game plan. Um, you don't want to be making big decisions like that on the hoof. Um, but I did have a game plan. And for me, this issue of weak social mobility, this problem of levelling up or the challenge, has been coming down the track for Britain for a long, 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 long time. So I felt whether it was where I grew up in Rotherham, where I'd be back seeing family and just thinking, this place hasn't changed. Yeah. Or whether it was representing Putney, going out on some of my local estates... As Jonathan at the back will know, I, a sense of people right here in London, young people, locked out of opportunity. They're not getting on the housing ladder. They happen to have been born here. Well, it completely chunks down. They're, there's opportunity on the doorstep, but there are kids growing up in Greenwich. They're not going to work in the city. They don't know the right people to mm. network them in there. So you could see it coming down the track. And we had done work at the DfE to launch what we called a social mobility action plan, I did not want to really do a white paper that was going to take ages to get through Parliament. I felt we needed to crack on with this. And we didn't really need loads of laws changed to drive better social mobility. We just needed a game plan. So we did the social mobility action plan. And in that forward, it says, the problem with Britain is talent spread evenly, but opportunity is not. Yeah. And so I just thought, look, I've done the talent spread evenly but not developed consistently bit. If I can't stay and deliver that, then I need to go off and do the other part, which is opportunity not spread evenly, which is the social mobility pledge. And I remember tweeting out saying, I'm going to work on social mobility, that's why I'm leaving. And I actually meant it. And I had two objectives. One was to do the pledge, and the second was to put levelling up at the top of the agenda in Parliament, because I could not for the life of me understand why inequality of opportunity wasn't something we were all really exercised about. So that's what I wanted to do. And, and, and Jimmy, when I, I remember launching the Social Mobility Action Plan in 2017, saying, if we're going to change Britain, it's going to take sheer bloody-mindedness. I did mean that. I thought, I'm, I'm working on this. Yeah. Whatever. So I took that ballsy decision to do that. To leave. And I just and thought, look, come on. You know, I'd had three amazing jobs in Cabinet... You know, it was and, and and left on good terms. It was it was great to be offered another one, but actually, I think you want to be doing stuff that you're really a hundred percent on. If you're me, and I just thought it was really time for me to find out how far I could take leveling up, driving leveling up, social mobility, all of that stuff. If I really, I thought, what if I actually do loads on this? Where do we go? And, and do you think you're having, in the two and a half years since you left Parliament as well, more impact on that? Yeah, I do. Um, I felt that, in a weird way, the very thing that I'd got involved in, which was politics and, and you know, in a political party, to help drive change, I, my sense was almost the politics of getting in the way of building a consensus on driving levelling up, and that the reality is for long-term challenges like climate change, like levelling up, you do need to have enough of a common ground platform to really push things forward. And so I was just willing to step outside the system to see if I could play a role in doing that. And that's partly what the Purpose Coalition has also been about, just giving some different space, I think, for 
parliamentarians to come together on something that actually is something they all genuinely agree on. And I'm interested, you know, I think all the parties need to have some answers on levelling up. I'd say it's the new NHS. You're not going to win an election unless you have a compelling levelling up agenda, whoever you are. And that's good political competition and that's good innovation across the parties. And I I think we should hope to see more of that. And what a fabulous note to finish on. I just wanted to ask one more thing before. One of the differences with politics now is that there are many more ways to get involved with it through various mayoralties and so on. We've seen the likes of the impact that Ben Houchin and Andy Street have had in their various uh, parts of the country. Is that something that might appeal to you a few years down the line? Sorry, what's that? Would Like running for a mayoralty role, would that be something that kind of appeals? (laughs) Oh, I don't. I, I, I'm really happy with what what I'm doing and the change it's driving. And I think there's a lot further to go on all of that, to be honest. I hope that there's a practitioner piece of it, that people who are leaders at a local level, at all local levels, actually, can really pick up and run with. Um, so I don't know. If you'd asked me what I was doing three years ago in the three years time, I wouldn't have been able to tell you this. I have no idea, Jimmy. What I do know is... Ever the politicians answer Well, no, but what, <laughs> what I do know is it'll be about how I drive levelling up across this country. That is it, and that's what I'm focused on. Brilliant. Justine, thank you so much for coming on Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Home. It's been great. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs. One of the ways that we make this show possible is by the partners that we have that support us. They can be like today's, like the Octopus Group or the Fintech Alliance, but also we've done more consumer-facing brands like Primary Bid and Beer 52. You can go to our website and check out more details at www.jobsofthefuture.co. The other way the show is made possible is by me going into organisations and talking about jobs of the future and the talent that is required to fill those jobs, how you retain them, how you attract them and how great teams are built that can achieve superb things that we hear about on this show. If you want to know more on that, drop us a line at hello at jobsofthefuture.co. We always love hearing from our listeners 